It's been 244 years since the Founding Fathers signed the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia. Here in the 21st century capital region, it's time for many to enjoy a much-earned long weekend. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top stories in the Times Union. A very weird, very bad scene at a time of the year when uh, when everybody needs ice cream. We'll hear about how some Capital Region High School graduations went over the past week. It was an extremely emotional event and it was very moving. We'll take a tour of one of the region's most interesting buildings. It's like they put every bit of ornamentation on this building that they could find. And, well... This one speaks for itself. I'm going to come up with a way to get a response from the town. I'm going to erect a seven-foot-tall penis in front of my house on the front lawn. Can the balls stay, or do I got to move the balls, too? This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what happened in the Times Union this week. We're here with Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. We're going to go over some of the top stories that appeared in the paper and online this week. Let's start with the top story now. Uh, there are efforts underway to bump up contact tracing uh, to you know, trace the folks who may have been compromised by a few people who flew up from Florida who are tested positive for COVID. Yeah, Warren County officials on Thursday announced that they were trying to talk to people who had been on either of these two flights from Florida that flew in last week, you know, June 25th and 26th, one flight from Punta Gorda, the other flight from St. Petersburg, Clearwater, you know, tourist centers, because there had been positive COVID-19 cases that had emerged from both of those flights. That is, needless to say, of concern and is kind of an object lesson in why the idea of a 14-day quarantine for people traveling in from Florida, Texas, and now a much longer list of states, which the governor put into effect about a week and a half ago, uh, is increasingly starting to look like a, a very good idea. In other words, if you, whether you're a New Yorker or you're from Florida or Texas or, or one of these other listed states where COVID-19 cases are spiking, when you come into New York, you will need to quarantine for 14 days. There was a lot of talk about that. But this type of situation, somebody flying into Albany and later testing positive for coronavirus, is exactly what this policy is aimed to head off. Mm. In other news, uh, there has been a bit of uh, controversy surrounding a local ice cream stand. Can you sort of set the scene for that? Yes, although it's a fairly bizarre scene. So we're talking about Bumpy's, which is, uh, you know, an ice creamatorium located on uh, State Street in Schenectady. It is owned by a guy named David Elmendorf, who is a former uh, Schenectady corrections officer, though no more. And he has been at loggerheads with local officials over both code enforcement and over the revelation 
that he is alleged to have made, uh, used racial slurs, made r- racially very offensive comments in, um, in communication saying that he does not hire black people. Black people was not the term that, that he used. This became a matter the uh, county attorney has uh, fired off a letter to the state attorney general asking for an investigation of hiring practices and these alleged uh, messages. Mr. Elmendorf's uh, attorney says, oh no, he's not, he's not at all a, a racist. But the controversy, uh, controversy has led to demonstrations taking place outside of Bumpy's. Uh, I believe it was on Sunday. The joint closed down a little bit early, although somebody told us that it opened up again. And then subsequent to that, Mr. Elmendorf was uh, arrested on a menacing charge for allegedly uh, pointing a, a pellet gun, you know, a replica long gun pellet gun at a group of protesters. And he was subsequently arrested. So a, a very weird, very bad scene at a time of the year when, uh, when everybody needs ice cream. If you head over to timesunion.com, there is uh, a very fuzzy, but it still exists, a video of the alleged incident in which he wielded the pellet gun. Um, So more on that at timesunion.com. Now moving on to something that's also somewhat explosive, literally and figuratively. Um, (laughs) An Albany County corrections officer claimed that someone opened the door of his house and threw in a firework. And that has since been... uh, debunked. So can you just kind of tell us how that transpired? Yeah, this is a sheriff's department employee, as as you noted, a correction officer named Ryan Lawson, who was arrested for making a false report that uh, someone had opened the door of his family's home in New Scotland, you know, which is rural, suburban, and tossed in some kind of uh, firework incendiary device that um, that set a rug or a carpet on fire. A report was made. Of course, there was great concern that perhaps this might have been action that had been taken against him because he works in law enforcement in the you know the current atmosphere. But um, it was subsequently alleged that this was uh, a false report that he had made. No motive was uh, was issued. But between Uh, Mr. Elmendorf and ice cream and Mr. Lawson and fireworks, it has been definitely a weird week for current or former corrections officers and summer-related events. It certainly sounds that way. And uh, speaking of fireworks as well, the holidays coming up this weekend, Independence Day. What are we watching out for this weekend? I'm watching out for my dog to make sure my dog doesn't freak out at um, what are what are fairly nightly uh, outbursts of fireworks near and far in my neighborhood and yours as well, one imagines, Jess. So I, for one, will be happy, although not for the reasons why the big fireworks are getting shut down, that perhaps um, this year's uh, cacophony will be somewhat subdued. Indeed. Well, we'll check back in with you next week and uh, we'll learn more. So thank you so much for joining us. Great. Have a great holiday weekend. Over the past week, many of the region's high schools held graduation ceremonies for seniors, who, it's fair to say, have been through a lot in the last three months. It was a chance to fulfill a rite of passage amid a pandemic, albeit under strict guidelines from the state. 
But as education reporter Rachel Silverstein reported this week, some districts followed the rules for the gatherings, and some may have taken a few liberties. I talked to Rachel about those events and how school districts are preparing for next fall. I am Jody Comerford, Albany High School's principal. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Albany High School's 150th commencement ceremony. Although a bunch of schools had their graduations this past weekend, and you covered those. Um, just give us kind of the high-level view of how those went. So yeah, this was a big week for seniors in the Capital Region. They almost didn't get to walk the stage or graduate or do anything, but in the final hour, like a week before graduations were set to start, the governor said all right, you can have graduations with certain restrictions. You can, if you do them outdoors under a tent or something and have less than 150 people present, then they're okay. Um, of course, you know, since schools closed due to the COVID-19 outbreak, you know, there were really strict restrictions about schools gathering in any capacity. So a lot of schools were really relieved, but of course this limitation is very restrictive. And for even a really small school that had 100 graduates, you know, 150 people means no one can bring any guests. Their parents can't even come. Schools were sort of bending over backwards to, you know, create multiple ceremonies and breaking it up into parades. And they came up with really innovative, creative ways to sort of work within these restrictions and allow students to at least cross the stage. And it was extremely emotional because these kids have missed out on all these milestones. They haven't had prom. They haven't had yearbook signings. They haven't seen each other often in, in months. Um, and so... It was an extremely emotional event and it was very moving. Can you just give me an example of one, you know, school district that did something innovative? Like Albany City Schools, for example, that was, I think, they had a really tough job. They had 600 or something graduates. And so they had to break it out, I think, into 12 different ceremonies over the course of two days. I know it was not an easy task. It rained, I think, both days. But they pulled it off, and I think it was really, really meaningful to the families that they got to see their kids walk the stage because that, that moment where you get your diploma and you walk the stage and you pose for pictures, and that's something that they all wanted to be part of. It's like a rite of passage that we all got to do, and you know, I think they were relieved that they got to make it happen. I know in Schenectady, they weren't able to pull something like that off. They did allow students to cross the stage and pose for a picture for 30 seconds at sort of designated times, but there was no like large in-person ceremony where family and friends could come and celebrate with them. Um, but at least they got to walk the stage, take a photo, get their diploma, and it was more like a symbolic thing, but you know. Yeah, there's some closure at least, some form of closure, right? Exactly, and I think that was a huge relief for a lot of students. Oh, that's good to hear. Now tell me, so this week you also wrote a story about some school districts that are either planning to flout the law or have already flouted, not the law, but the, you know, the governor's mandates with regard to graduation. So tell me about those. Yeah, I mean, it's unclear who the chain of command was. I know it's the local government's job to enforce the social distancing guidelines. And it seems like some school districts in Saratoga in particularly got, you know, counsel about stage three and stage four, you know, businesses, restaurants are allowing to people to sit inside with, at 50% capacity um, while letting people have outdoor seating. So some schools, I think, were taking some liberties in planning their graduations, hoping that it would either fly under the radar or if they're planned down the line in the future, you know, stage four regulations will allow them to host 
large in-person gatherings on their football fields, even though their plan is sort of to socially distance people, have families kept in pods that are six feet apart. Some of them already pulled it off and some of them, it's not clear if other districts will be able to pull it off in the future, but it seems like there are some districts that are trying to, especially smaller ones, are trying to bend the rules. I heard there were mumblings about secret proms. Yeah, in Mechanicville, they had a, it wasn't quite secret, They did, but they didn't allow anyone to take photos of it. Um, I think it was like in their cafeteria and on their back deck. And the way they saw it is, well, we've been treating it like a restaurant. And since school is technically out, we're holding ourselves to the same standards as like eating establishments in the capital region. And the governor, you know, when I reached out to him, his people were very adamant that these are, they had to abide by the rules and they would be enforced. And Have any of those, those schools and, you know, that you're talking about, have any of them been tagged for any of the, the activity that they've been hosting? Potentially they could get fined um, if they deliberately flout the rules. But I think this might be just a case of miscommunication or interpretation um, it seems like they got advice from certain agencies, the county agencies in Saratoga, who may have, you know, guided them in, in the wrong direction, or they were kind of hoping that it wouldn't be strictly enforced. So I don't, as far as we know, the, the graduation is still going on. And, you know, I do feel a little bad if it gets canceled because of my story. But on the other hand, you know, this is happening. And it seems like clearly these school districts need a little more clarity on what the guidelines are. Over the course of the last month, you've been reporting on some of the special things that some of the seniors this year have been doing and sort of highlighting their achievements in this last semester of their very unusual senior year. Can you talk about some of that? So one thing we've been doing to honor the 20th class of 2020 is we spent the entire June highlighting high school seniors doing amazing things. Um, and it's been really nice. Every week we publish like large spreads in our Sunday paper of seniors who are really, you know, a pair of sisters in, in Albany, the Moore sisters who both ended up in the top 10 um, and them talking about their sort of sibling rivalry. We talked to students in Schenectady, a, a wonderful young lady who's giving out masks to students in need, you know, one of a very high-achieving student in East Greenbush who's making masks in his basement, and it's been really nice to be able to highlight and at least give some credit to these seniors who worked really, really hard um, and give them credit uh, where it's due. Yeah, so for you, it hasn't been all like doom and gloom and uncertainty, and you know, you were covering before, you are covering issues where the school districts were trying to, you know, get online learning up and running, you know, back in March and stuff, so, so it must have been nice for you to, to kind of switch gears a little bit and highlight some really excellent students. It was, and it was nice that they, you know, they weren't feeling sorry for themselves. It was nice to see that, you know, even though it was going to be different and their expectations, you know, their senior year wasn't how they expected it to be. Um, they were thinking about other people. They wanted to help others and they were, you know, optimistic and, and had like a really good attitude. That's really special. That's awesome. The next thing, obviously, that, you know, you're, you're probably going to keep an eye on, obviously, is the fall. Yes. <laughs> so what's kind of your approach going to be as you go into the summer and as school districts are, you know, wrestling with what they're going to do in the fall? What's, what's, what are your thoughts? So I am talking to school districts right now about sort of the reopening plans. Um, it does look like both K-12 through schools and colleges aren't going to be fully open in the sense that they're going to have students sitting in desks throughout the day. It seems like both K through 12 schools and colleges and universities in the region are eyeing some sort of hybrid model where students have the option of staying home or doing some sort of hybrid in-person online coursework 
or just taking their courses completely on, online, depending on their circumstances. You know, some people are medically fragile or they, for one reason or another, they can't um, return to the classroom. There's also faculty who don't feel comfortable returning to the classroom because they have a pre-existing position. So it's definitely gonna be interesting to see how they pull it off. I know for K through 12 schools, transportation is a big deal. Figuring out how to get kids on the bus in a socially distanced way. As if anyone's been on a school bus in their life, they know it's pretty much impossible to keep kids apart from each other or even <laughs> enforce any sort of order. So that is, a, I think they're trying to do something where they have half students going to school or stagnating days or having them go to school shift and having kids on the school bus be separated by a seat so that they're apart. And similarly in, in dorm rooms, I know that they're only doing single rooms. They're not requiring kids to live on campus anymore. Um, I know at Albany Law School, they are, instead of having a cafeteria dining, they're having food trucks outside. So people are doing really creative things. I know Sienna, they're putting a tent up outside to try to expand their dining seating so that people can be more distanced when they eat. And so I know dining is going to be an issue too, trying to keep people apart and, and coming up with creative, innovative ways to keep everyone safe. We'll have lots to look forward to in your reporting there. And also as a side note, I know so many people that I went to college with who would have killed for a single room. So maybe there is a silver lining there. You never know. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely going to be like expensive. And I do wonder the financial impact on both school districts and colleges and universities, especially like private liberal arts schools that were already uh, struggling with planning enrollments. And we already know that, you know, enrollments are declining for next year. Some kids just want to sit out the whole year because they didn't really like learning through a computer, you know, so I, I think it's going to be interesting and, and it's going to be the fallout. It's going to be interesting as well. The Capitol region is home to many famous buildings. The State Capitol, Schuyler Mansion, Olana, Proctor's Theater, just to name a few. They're oozing with history, both local and national. But it also has a wealth of buildings that, while they don't have the fame, still have rich stories. Reporter Lee Hornbeck captures those stories in her bi-monthly feature, Cornerstones. I caught up with her this week to talk about her latest subject, the Boston Spa Village Hall. Can you just describe the series that you've been writing? I'm interested in life stories of buildings. With Cornerstones, what I wanted to do is find buildings that weren't necessarily the greatest architecture or the most compelling history, but were buildings that people had emotional attachment to for one reason or another. So the first one I did, and in some ways because I knew this would be easy, <laughs> I did 44 Central Ave. And the reason it was easy is because it's occupied and has been for a couple decades by the Preservation League of New York State. So <laughs> preserving architectural history is kind of their thing. So I knew that they would have great records of everything that that building ever was, and they did. Yes, it was really fascinating because it, the way it's built, now if you picture it, you come off of Henry Johnson Boulevard and there's a point, there's, that building kind of creates a point. The reason it was built like that is because it was the end of a farm to market trail. I love that building. Every time I drive by there, I just gaze at it. It's in marvel and, you know, and I also wonder what its history is. So mm -hmm. to have you make that your first is great. The second building I did in the series is actually a bunch of buildings. It's the five buildings that are now the art center of the capital region. So that had been a furniture store in the late 90s when the process began to turn it into the art center. I like to spread it around to do buildings in 
not just Albany County, but you know, obviously Rensselaer County, Saratoga, and Schenectady. So I moved into Saratoga County for this next one. It was very exciting because it was the first outing I've had out of my house, away from my daddy room, since I did the Troy Arts Center. So I, back in March, I went and did that. It was my last like in-person thing before I started working exclusively at my dining room table. And so with mask and distancing, I went over and I got a tour of the Boston Spa Village Hall. I got to describe for listeners, if you don't know it, the Boston Spa Village Hall, it's Italianate. And it is to the nth degree of that style of architecture. It's like they put every bit of ornamentation on this building that they could find. In the story, I describe it as there was a fire sale and decorative brackets and friezes and fancy, you know, window encasements. And I mean, it's like overdone to me. My particular taste is like too much. And it stands out because one, it's really fancy. And there's nothing like that around it. Before Saratoga Springs, Balsam Spa was the height of Mineral Springs tourism. It at one time was a huge place to go for people all over the world until Saratoga Springs moved into that position. It fronts Front Street, so it's 66 Front Street, at the corner of Front and Bath. And kind of below grade, because there's a steep hill there, there's an entrance into the side of the building from Bath Street. Larry Woolbright is the mayor uh, of Boston Spa, and he gave me a tour. It's only 25 feet facing Front Street. So that makes for a very narrow footprint inside. It's just not a very wide building. It's kind of long along the Bath Street side, but it's very narrow in the Front Street. So all of the workings of a modern village are really shoved into a very small space inside. So Balsam Spa in 1873, when this building was built, was kind of beyond its Mineral Springs tourism heyday. It was a mill town. It was much more of a mill town then. But there was money there. And this bank, the first national bank, was doing really well. And so they wanted to display that. And that's why it's so elaborately decorated, because it's like, look at us. We're very successful. You should see how good our bank is. We're going to make it super fancy, like a Trump Tower, maybe. You could compare it to no gilded toilets, though, right? Not anymore. They could have been taken out. They did well for a long time, but then there was an embezzlement, and that undermined the bank. And then the Great Depression killed it off completely. So in 1932, the bank closed, but it went in 1937 to the ownership of the village. So it's been the village headquarters ever since. Everybody's on the first floor. There's this great, it's probably was never wood fired. It was a coal fireplace in the back, marble, really pretty, where the uh, mayor sits. And then they've got, it's a 16 foot ceiling in the first floor. It's enormously tall. It's just really narrow. And there's two safes in the building because, of course, it was a bank. And they use the one safe to lock up. That has all like Balsam Spa vital records. So it's locked at night. And so the village historian is a man named John Cromey, who is only now formally the village historian. He's one of these guys that knows an immense amount about the local history. So he digs up this book for me, John does, and it was written in 1874, and it's called called Leading Men and Leading Pursuits of Boston and Vicinity. It was written by this man named John S. Buckley, 
and he describes the new bank was at the time a new bank, you know, like the solid piece of workmanship that the counter was and the French and black walnut and like the state of the art uh, safe. But he says about it, the first national bank has had a past which is abundantly stowed with green parentheses back, like he makes this little joke. <laughs> is abundantly stowed with greenback recollections, and may its future be ripened with golden realizations, and may this silver cheer of prosperity ever shine on the heads of the gentlemanly officers of the That's so poetic. Right? And it just cracked me up. I mean, of course, there's lions on the front door. There's little lion heads. And that was to symbolize, like, we're protecting your money. Until, of course, they weren't, because they had somebody in Bethel, a whole bunch of money, go to prison, come back, live happily ever after in Balsam Spa, and then the Great Depression came. And so at the time, Balsam Spa National Bank, which is still an entity, took over the first national bank and it all folded together. And it cost $30,000 to build the building in 1873. And by the time it sold in, eight, in 1937, it sold for $2,400. The building was, was drawn up, was designed by Marcus Cummings for... Architecture geeks out there, of which in Albany, by the way, there are many. He was a huge, huge, widely known architect in this time frame. He designed the Ilium building in Troy. There's a very famous looking, kind of Queen Anne style, I would say, different than the Italian. The public library in North Adams. He was prolific, sounds like. Prolific, thank you. He's a prolific <laughs> architect, and he did this one. Can you give us any idea of what we might look forward to for another column in the future? Do you have any ideas that you're willing to share yet? I love for these to come from readers. I love for readers to say, you know, I know about such and such building and it's got this interesting history. I want to welcome people to Elhornbeck at timesunion.com. I'd love to move into Schenectady County next time. So I just, I don't know, I'm a total nerd for this stuff. You're starting to make me a nerd for it, too. I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated. Yeah, and it's the people that make the stories. You know, it's, the, it's really the human story behind the brick and the mortar that I'm compelled by. That's excellent. Well, I can't wait to hear about what you're going to do next for Cornerstones. Thank you so much for the preview. Thank you. After the break, the tale of a woodworker, his First Amendment rights, and a giant sculpture of male genitalia. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Before I go on, if you're sensitive about any discussion of male genitalia, you may need to listen to the next part of this podcast with care and maybe some earmuffs for the kids. Ready? Okay. A Wilton man has raised a ruckus this month after he erected a wooden sculpture of what for all intents and purposes we'll call a giant penis. He was recently arrested and forced to remove the member, but he's fighting the town for what he says violated his First Amendment rights. Reporter Wendy Liberator has been following the saga of the Wilton Woody, and I couldn't resist asking her about it. 
forgive the pun, but on a scale of one to 10, how ridiculous is this story? To 10, I was basically not sure if I should do a follow-up story on it because it did seem so ridiculous, but it got so many hits, I couldn't resist. (laughs) That's like, hey, if it gets clicks, uh, let's do it. Exactly, exactly. I want to make a really, really, you know, not safe for radio pun here, but I will, I will resist. But in any case, just take me through it. I mean, tell me what, you know, the story was from the very beginning. Jamie Gagney is a woodworker who lives in Wilton. And his workshop burned down in 2016. So he designed another workshop for himself. And he's been moving along doing the workshop suddenly his building permit was revoked. He kept going back to the town uh, code enforcer, Mark uh, Mikens, asking, please, let's figure this out so I can get my workshop up and running. He was getting no response from the town. So he said, okay, I'm going to come up with a way to get a response from the town. I'm going to erect a seven-foot-tall penis in front of my house on the front lawn. uh, As an artistic expression of my frustration for not being able to finish my workshop and not being able to communicate, not getting any communication from the building department. Of course, he did get the attention. Uh, Many people, including the neighbor, his neighbor across the street, John Parker, has been emailing the town regularly about the going-ons at Jamie Gagney's property because he doesn't like this wood shop definitely did not like the penis and i apparently other people complained too but mostly people enjoyed stopping by and taking their picture with the penis he had a lot of visitors he also sent around a note to all his neighbors and uh he did a survey on next door to tell them about it and uh, only 28 percent didn't like the penis So um, out of 72 respondents, so he thinks it's funny and that, you know, and also that it's his absolute First Amendment right to free speech to have a giant penis on his property. So there you go. So with the penis, right? Yeah. Tons of complaints on it, right? A lot of people have talked about it. I know Trooper Dibble came over and talked to you. Yep. Regarding. I've been getting a lot of comments, right. actually. I agree. I agree. I, uh, <laughs> it's quite funny, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we represent the whole public, right? So. Totally understand. Yep. Arrested for it, showing obscene material. It's a misdemeanor. Now, even the, I, I watched the video that he had taken of when he was arrested, and even the yes. cops thought it was funny. Yes, right? everybody thinks it's funny. He's got a lot of people who, who as I said, stopped to buy and straddled the penis and wanted to picture <laughs> straddling the penis. So, yeah. Oh, my but goodness. I'm insane. sorry. I can't help but blush when I talk about it. When I, I, know, I know. it is It's ridiculous. But anyway, his neighbor did not find it amusing, and apparently other people didn't either. So that's why he was arrested. He told me, well, the cops are very nice. They, they arrested him and then brought him back home, gave him a ride back home. That's got to get moved off the front yard and displayed in the backyard. You can, it just can't be viewable from the street. Can the balls stay, or do I got to move the balls to... I mean, they look like pretty indistinct. Yeah, they're fine. 
you know, now he's just waiting for the lawyers to, to deal with it. And he thinks he'll get the charges dismissed because it is ridiculous. Or it's his First Amendment right to have that. And he wants to put it back up as soon as the charges are dismissed. And, and so we'll see. So maybe this isn't the last we've, uh, we've seen from the Wilton Woody. Right, that's right. And right now it just lays on the side of his unfinished workshop. And the testicles are still there as a tribute, he said, to the Wilton Woody. And over above the testicles is a sign castrated by New York State Police. Oh boy, there's so many fun ways to express this story, for sure. And it was one of those stories, I, I imagine, at least for me when I read it, that kind of took me away from some of the more sobering news that, that we have going on. So, you know, covering a story like this, what was that? Was that did it have a similar effect on you? Yes, it did. I felt that I was um, shirking in my duties and that I should be doing something more serious. But again, there seems to be a lot of interest in this story. So therefore, I said I should go back because really, this is a fight between free speech and what people find offensive. You know, several years ago, there was a similar fight. I can't remember what the artwork was in Loudonville, where someone didn't like artwork uh, on someone's lawn in Loudonville. I'm not sure how that ended up. But there's, there have been cases around the region where this type of thing has been in dispute, right? That's right. And so this is another one. And is it art or is it uh, pornography? That's for the courts to decide. And, and this guy has a blog, right, where he kind of writes regularly about this whole saga. Yes, and he's been uh, foiling the town right along uh, to find out information about who's been complaining about him. Basically, right now, it looks like only his neighbor across the street. And he also has a, an attorney, John Parker, and he said he couldn't speak about it because his attorney told him not to. Well, so there will be more to come for this story. Do you think you'll cover it if there's more to come? Of course, I want to see what happens in the courts. Of course, the DA in Saratoga County has been mute, so I'm not sure what their plans are. She doesn't like to uh, litigate things in the press. That's her standard response to everything, so. Sure, sure. Now, you talked to Jamie, right? Did he tell you how he made it? He took a pine tree, basically, and uh, he stripped off its bark, I'm not sure how he shaped the tip, <laughs> um, but you know, it's very realistic looking. It's very realistic looking. I, I saw it. So um, Listeners can use their imagination here, yes. <laughs> or they can go to timesunion.com and see the actual picture of it. Yeah. I'm not sure if he used a chainsaw or what, but he did a great job carving it. It is a very realistic sculpture. So. Does he have any other sculptures in his yard? Does he have any, anything else that he's kind of... Well, the about? only other thing he has in his yard, he um, has a tribute to Black Lives Matter and the pandemic. He uh, spray-painted a big, giant piece of plywood that he put up, which his neighbor also apparently finds offensive. And he also has, like, a tribute to his dog that got hit by a car in front of his house. Yeah, and it says, slow down for Shiloh, 
which the town told him was in the town's right away and forced him to push that back. The town, after he was arrested, sent him seven uh, violations on things like his sign, slow down for Shiloh, as well as other violations on his property. So he, he has to fight those as well. Yeah, it sounds like he's got a lot of battles with the town ahead of him. He does. Well, this story has definitely been a great diversion for me. <laughs> I, I enjoyed your story. And, you know, it is what it is, right? It's a giant phallic item. Right. That I can't has even been, bring myself to say it. <laughs> yes, has fallen. And now who knows what his fate will be. We'll keep watching it. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. And enjoy the long weekend.